Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. I am your host, Dustin Smith, and we've got a very special show for you today. The Florida Gators 2020 schedule has been released in full, and as of now, it does appear as though we're going to have a college football season. As we mentioned before, this is a super fluid situation. Things are subject to change. But as of right now, it does look like college football has the green light in the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12. So at this point, we are going to assume that there will be football in 2020. And we're going to move forward with this podcast accordingly. So for this very special episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast, we have got a five-star roster. As usual, we've got in all kinds of weather founder Neil Schulman on board. We've also got Casey Hampton with us today in between busy spells at Georgia Tech, which means that once again, we've got the whole crew back together. What's going on, guys? Uh, it's going about as swimmingly as one could hope in these times. Um, been a busy week with real-world obligations. Been a busy week of news for the Florida Gators. But it's finally time to record this special episode that I've been waiting so long to be able to record. We've been teasing it. We've been hinting at it. And now it's time, finally, to actually do it. Yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's awesome to be back. Just been crazy busy with work, but uh, really excited to talk to uh, one of my favorite Gators tonight. Casey actually just wrote his first piece for inallkindsofweather.com since this podcast was resurrected, in which he did a game-by-game -game breakdown of Florida's 2020 schedule, which is perfect since that's exactly what we're going to be talking about on today's show. So after you listen to this very special show, be sure to check out that article. And speaking of this very special show, last but certainly not least, we've got a very special guest with us today. We've been hinting at it for a while. We've said on previous shows that we hope to have a special guest lined up for this schedule breakdown episode. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got him. Many Gator fans will probably remember him from abusing Georgia in Florida's one trip to Athens since 1932, which was actually Florida's only ever win in Athens. So fun fact there. Or you may remember him from frying FSU's secondary in the same year en route to Florida's perfect regular season in 1995. You may also remember him from being an All-American in 1995, a member of the Florida-Georgia Hall of Fame, a three-time SEC champion, and perhaps, most of all, we know that everybody remembers him from a play that is known as simply, Doring's got a touchdown! That's right, everybody. We've got Chris Doring on our show today, and he's here to talk about the Florida Gators' upcoming season. Chris, thank you so much for your time, and welcome to our show. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me back, man. It's uh, we we did this about what this time last year, I think, right? Something? So two years ago, two years, two years ago. ago, two years ago. Damn. Time and this is a different version of the podcast. We sort of uh, filed chapter eleven and sort of reorganized. Uh, <laughs> that happens. Don't and worry we're about back. It. Yeah. No, it was just a time thing. Uh, we all had different things going on in our lives. We had to just shutter it for a little bit. The host actually had to do something completely different. But Casey was on the previous iteration of it, and I'm back as well and Dustin is our new host so nice. wait uh should we should we show Neil or show yeah, Neil? quickly quickly yeah so yeah. you've actually met these guys before that, <laughs> that is Dustin as a baby so so back when you're playing for Florida uh, my parents were super close with Eric Rett okay and after and uh after a game this is you're holding me that's you huh that's awesome. yeah I don't know how awesome that is back actually. in the I'm day old shit, but yeah that's funny <laughs> <laughs> I, I, cool. I just bought you a beer in atlanta during yeah. the media days i remember that that's no. funny <laughs> that, that was a little yeah. more uh, recent well, yeah. yeah i'm sure i'm sure you helped plenty of kids back in that day <laughs> that's funny yeah. man that's it's all good cool. it's a 
It's all good. You never, you never lost the good looks, right? Oh, shoot. I appreciate <laughs> it, man. And I look in the mirror and it tells me otherwise, but I'm, uh, I'm trying oh, to hang it Oh, no, no, no. You look just good. as young as you did when you first played Thank for you, us, man. man. I appreciate it. Yeah, so it's, it's great to have you on, man. We absolutely loved having you on our podcast back in its previous life in 2018, and, and we're super excited to have you on again today. So, again, we we thank you so much for coming on and being a part of this. No, I appreciate we, you guys, man. I'm, I'm, uh, you guys do a great job. Love following you guys on, on social as well. So I uh, appreciate all the, the Florida info. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot, dude. That really does. Um, but yeah, we're excited to have you on because not only are you a Gator great, but you're also an analyst for the SEC Network. And so you were the perfect guest for our schedule breakdown episode because you're able to tap into both worlds and see things yeah, from the orange and blue perspective, but also from a neutral point of view. Before we get going today, though, I do want to quickly shout out our partner organization, the Gator Good Foundation. So this is a nonprofit organization that I am very proud to be a part of. What we do is we raise money to send an underprivileged individual to his or her first ever Florida Gator football game in the swamp. Now, these are diehard Florida Gator fans who, for one reason or another, just never could make a trip to the swamp happen and we want to make it happen for them we've been operating since 2018 this was going to be our third year doing it it's to put it mildly not looking particularly good in terms of doing it again this year for obvious reasons but we are planning to do something for someone in some capacity in 2020 And we do also want to state that we don't know when, but at some point things will return to normal. And we are taking this time amidst the pandemic to build our brand behind the scenes to ensure that when things do return to normal, we'll be better situated than ever before to make Gator fans' wildest dreams come true. To learn more about about how you can help out and to get further updates on what we're doing, we encourage you to follow our social media handles which are at the Gator Good on Twitter, at Gator Good Foundation on Instagram, and the Gator Good Foundation on Facebook. Having said all that, let's turn our focus over to our guest, Chris Doran. We have a proud one guest history on this podcast of opening conversations with our guests with a little segment that we call the lightning round. And this is Casey's brainchild. So I'll turn it over to him. Chris, um, you know, we started this to get to know our guests a little bit better, uh, yeah. both on and off the field. So why Florida? Why'd you become a Gator? Shoot, I, I grew up in Gainesville. My parents were both uh, graduates of the University of Florida. I went to every single home game from the time I was about four years old on. My father was a professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Florida. Like, that's what I did. Not only just Florida football, but Florida basketball and baseball and gymnastics. I mean, that's the beauty of, of growing up in Gainesville is you get exposed to all of those different great sporting events. And, and I just always remember from the, the earliest that I, I can remember was just, I wanted to be Chris Collinsworth. I wanted to run out of the tunnel when they yelled, here come the Gators. And still I get chill bumps, you know, hearing that and watching the team run out. So that's, that was bred in me long ago and was something that I was really uh, fortunate to have a chance to, to live out. What was your favorite win to be a part of as a Gator? As a player? Yeah, as a player. Uh, you know, I'm going to give you two, and it's kind of like bookends of my career. My, my first start as a Gator was 1993 in Lexington, Kentucky. Caught my first touchdown in the fourth quarter and came back and caught the game winner with three seconds left. That became probably the, the play that everybody uh, associates with, with Chris Doring. And uh, the one, the last one, my senior day, we're playing against Florida State. We hadn't had a whole lot of success against them. Uh, we're undefeated, trying to, to play for a national championship. And uh, not only do we beat them, but I catch the SEC single season at the time and career record for uh, touchdown reception. So that was kind of, kind of a cool way to, to, to leave the swamp for my last time. Not bad for a walk-on. Yeah, exactly, right? Wow. Who's your favorite Florida receiver of all time? Chris Collinsworth, man, no doubt about it. There's so many great ones. <laughs> and I, I don't want, you know, Tyrone Young was a, one that I loved. I love Ricky Natile. Uh Ernie Mills came before me. Like, there's so many good ones, but... Chris Collinsworth was the guy that I kind of patterned my game after. Uh, tall, skinny, white dude. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to follow in his footsteps playing in the NFL and then getting into journalism, broadcast stuff, which I've been able to do. So he's had a huge influence on my life, not only on the field, but off as well. It's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, so what was your favorite Gator win 
to witness as a fan after your days were over. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I got a few after my after. Well, let's let's do this. First of all, since I was in at all those games, I'm going to give you a couple that stood out to me that I was at as a kid. Uh, one would be the win over Miami. I think it was like 81, 82, somewhere around there. James Jones caught the winning touchdown with one hand down in the uh, northeast corner, which was uh, an unbelievable win over Howard Schnellenberger's team. Uh, the comeback, Florida was down 17 nothing against Auburn, and, and uh, Kerwin Bell brought him back, hit Ricky Natiel on a fade, scrambled for the, uh, the two-point conversion. That was one that I remember really well. And then I guess after my playing career was over, um, you, you have to look at the national championship games. Those are great. But I really believe maybe one of my favorite was the 97 game when Florida was uh, an underdog to number one Florida State. My former roommate and one of my best friends, Noel Brindice, was playing quarterback along with Doug Johnson in that game. And, and Florida pulled an unbelievable upset with the uh, – ran the five semi-face mask to Jacquez, got Florida down there, and Fred finished it off. It was a really cool game, especially because I had so many friends and teammates on that team at that time. You know, I, I never saw my mom absolutely melt down, except when uh, Green got behind the defense. My mom, like, went ballistic in the house. Isn't that funny? Get like behind those, the defense! Those, those, <laughs> those games that you remember as a, as a kid, like, it, it doesn't impact you the same way as an adult, but as a kid, I, I think that's the thing that, that I remember in that Kentucky game. Uh, us winning, to me, and after the game, I'm thinking, wow, there's probably a lot of kids out there that lived and died and would have been heartbroken had we lost this game. Just like I, as, a, as a kid, man, watching Buck Blue to Lindsey Scott and uh, those, those heartbreaking losses we had to Georgia, it felt very, uh, very real to me as a kid. And uh, that's why I was so happy about winning that Kentucky game the way we did to save some uh, young Florida fans from heartbreak that night. I think, uh, I think I told you the story last time we talked, but uh, that game my grandfather turned off the TV and we had Mick on. So, you know, we're hearing Mick while watching it live. It was- yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, I, I say this all the time, man. That's one of my favorite things about that catch is that there's so many Gator fans uh, that I get a chance to meet that, that tell me exactly where they were, what they were doing when that happened. And uh, very few times in life can people identify exactly what they were doing at any moment. And uh, to be associated with those memories uh, of Gator fans is really cool for me. Cool. And uh, last question of the lightning round, what's, uh, what's your favorite home and away jersey combo? You know what? I like uh, – we, we were pretty clean at home. We were always blue up top, white on the bottom. So, uh, you know, that, that's – I'm a traditionalist there. I actually liked our white-on-white road game uh, attire. We, I think we, we wore that that night in Kentucky. Coach always if – we, if we lost in certain uniforms, we'd change it up. Um, the orange pants didn't, uh, didn't do very well out in the Fiesta Bowl. But um, I think the, the white-on-white is probably my favorite road combo. Cool. Well, the white on orange did very well in 1995 in Athens. That's true. I will never <laughs> forget that because that was the only time we have ever won a game in Athens, Georgia. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Put 52 on them between the hedges. Between so. the hedges. Yeah, that was the that was a that was a cool um, that was one of my favorite memories. Getting a chance to play Georgia in Jacksonville, in Gainesville, and in in Athens was a, a really cool experience that very few Gator players have ever been able to say they did. You had to beat them in all three, not just play them, beat them. Yeah, we, that, that's, we, it, back then, you know, my five years, I was 5-0. and oh, So we just, I mean, it was, it was a given that we were going to beat Georgia back then. I love these lightning rounds, man. I really, really love these lightning rounds. You're just the second person we've had on to do it after Shannon Snell, which, by the way, that was a super special episode that we did about two months ago. It's called From the 813 to 2020. It's a conversation with – in everlasting shelf life. It's, it's just never going to lose its relevance. So if you haven't already done so, be sure to check it out. But yeah, anyway, I love these lightning rounds because as time goes by and this podcast continues to march on, we're going to get to compare answers to all these questions from various Gator legends, and we'll be able to identify common answers and patterns. Anyway, uh, now that we're all warmed up, time for the featured presentation. Let's talk 2020. Good deal. Let's kick it off, man. So I guess the best way to kick it off is by asking uh, the question, and we can get into details after about it, but uh, now that you've had a few days to digest it, what, what are your thoughts on uh, the Gators 2020 schedule? You know what? I, I think there was a lot of Gator fans that were upset uh, after the unveiling of the two new opponents from the West. Uh, everybody thought that Florida was going to have the, the easier schedule of the expected top two teams in the, in the East, and then when 
Uh, Georgia maybe got off a little lighter. They already had Alabama on their schedule. So uh, the SEC was cognizant of, of the totality of the existing schedules uh, in the addition of the two new teams for each. And, and Florida drawing Texas A&M you know, made some fans a little uneasy. But I'll be honest with you, like, as I look at it, I think the SEC did a great job of making everybody's schedule as equitable as possible. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at 10 SEC opponents, I thought there were going to be stretches of four and five games where, you know, there, there were going to be teams that, that were just getting beat up. But I thought they did a nice job of, of spreading everybody out. Um, you know, Georgia has a pretty tough run early in their, in their first half of the season. Uh, I do think that Florida has a unique schedule finishing with Tennessee because when I was at Florida, all we ever heard from Tennessee was, oh, man, we play you guys too early. If we played you at the end of the season, we'd beat you. And, of course, you know, 2001 when the 9-11 attacks happened, they moved that game to the end and, and Tennessee comes into the swamp and, and beat Florida. So I'm hoping that we can, you know, since we're on a, a Florida podcast here, I'll say we and, and uh, look at it through orange and blue glasses. But I'm hoping that hey, we you can, totally can do that. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can finish. And that's going to be a tough little stretch between Kentucky and Tennessee at the end of the year. Uh, that's going to be challenging for Florida finishing it up. And how – how great would it actually be if, if, it, if everything came down to that final game between Florida and, and Tennessee to see who gets to go to Atlanta? We could return the favor in Knoxville. That's right. Exactly It'd be so right. sweet. Yeah, we, we owe them that special dose of payback. Uh, that, would, that would be just perfect. So the SEC scheduling drew lots of complaints from certain schools. I think Florida may have had a gripe for sure. I think Missouri and Arkansas – had bigger gripes against this new scheduling because of what they determined to be a less than transparent formula. But the SEC has stated very clearly and multiple times, it wasn't just about adding two opponents in isolation. It had to do with the totality of the strength of the 14 different teams, 10 game schedules being as, as even as possible. So with that in mind, what are your thoughts on how every team's two additional opponents were decided. Did the SEC get it right? You guys follow as much of this as I do and in, in the SEC specifically. Like, there's always going to be something that SEC fans bitch about, right? There, I mean, literally, uh, being in the SEC Network studio, um, you know, they're complaining about our biasness of the SEC Network. You know, they're complaining about the officiating. They're complaining about the scheduling. Like, there's always something that's going to be – and not right, right with one fan base in our conference. But I, I think the, the thing you have to remember, there's only 13 other teams you can possibly play. So there's got to be a combination where everybody gets 10 games from those other 13 teams. And, uh, you know, it, it does suck for Arkansas and Missouri to have the two best teams, or at least two we believe to be the two best teams in the East and the West heading into the season. But I'll say this, if I'm an Arkansas or Missouri fan, I would much rather have that difficult of a schedule now then when I'm, you know, maybe competing for a division with a team that's, that's been around and has some veterans and, and understand, you know, the schemes that these coaches are utilizing. So I think the thing that you'll, you guys probably would, would recognize as well, the people that are complaining are the fans. Players don't complain about that. Like, players love the opportunity to go play the best. You know, I, I look at Kentucky. Kentucky drew uh, a trip to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I promise you that Mark Stoops and those, the, those players on that team – are excited about proving that they are ready to take that next step. I, I think Kentucky is a real dark horse in the East this year, and I think they, they, they're excited about having the chance to go into one of the most storied stadiums in college football and seeing what they can do going up against uh, Nick Saban and his Alabama team. You know, I, I wrote an article uh, for Neil Site in all kinds of weather, and – you know, I, I can wear orange and blue glasses all day long, but the job that Mark Stoops has done in Lexington, yeah. I mean, you got to, if you can take a wide receiver and put him at quarterback and still be successful, I mean, he, they almost beat Georgia last year. I mean, yeah. that, that is not a game that we should take lightly. Anymore. No, I, I think the thing that you have to remember, and, and I don't know that, that a lot of people have, have really made the adjustment. This is not the Kentucky teams of past. You know, I, I, I saw – I think Bovada said that, that they had the win total for Kentucky this year at like four games or four and a half. Like, give me the over all day long. I think they beat Auburn in week number one. You know, I think they go into that Auburn game with better offensive and defensive lines than the wow. Tigers have. And, and when was the last time that we could ever say that about a Kentucky team, that they have a better offensive line than just about every team in the SEC this year? Like, he has built that team. He's done it recruiting. He's done it with changing the mindset, the physicality, the reason they moved 
Lynn Bowden to, to quarterback last year and were able to have so much success. Not that Lynn Bowden wasn't a great player, which he was, but the offensive line was really the catalyst for that success. Their ability to run the ball when they had no real threat of the passing game really speaks to just how good those guys are up front last year and how good they expect them to be again this year. And, I mean, t- Terry Wilson um, coming back under center is going to be – you know, he beat Florida last time he yeah. played. So. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a uh, – you know, the, the talk heading into last season was how much he had improved, how much better he'd gotten with his accuracy – how much more he understood concepts. And, and unfortunately for them, they lost him early in September. So how much is he able to you know, hit the ground running? How much is he able to bang the rust off and, and play at a high level? So I am excited about that. I really hope that Joey Gatewood gets that waiver for eligibility to, to get a chance to play against Auburn in week number one. That would be quite the ironic story. Honestly, it wouldn't shock me if they beat Georgia too. I mean, they've given Georgia a fight for a half at least in each of the last two years, they just couldn't score points, but their defense kept them at bay. And now they've got Terry Wilson back, or maybe it is Gatewood who we know has a lot of talent. And as you mentioned, they've got a very good offensive line. So if I were a Georgia fan, thankfully I'm not, I couldn't imagine going four decades without a national title, but if I were, I would be very wary of that game. Well, Hey, speaking of Georgia, I know every game, Gator fan has that game marked on their calendar on November 7th. They had to change their calendar, right? But uh, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a new calendar now. But, man, on that day, it, it's going to be a big, big game for the Gators. See, Florida has lost three straight times to Georgia. And the Bulldogs are, again, the SEC East favorites. Now, some – and uh, we'll, we'll find out a little, a little bit more about what you're thinking as far as the, the, how the season's going to play out. Um, but some are thinking the Gators, but most, again, are picking Georgia from everything that, that we've seen. And as we said, losing that game in 2018 and in 2019, both times it cost Florida the East and potentially even more. So we know that's a big one. I'd like to get your thoughts on the matchup, but also besides that, Besides the Florida-Georgia game, what other game on the schedule would you consider to be Florida's toughest? Well, I, I think, first of all, you know, the, the Georgia game, when I was a kid, you know, I was just talking trash about us beating Georgia every year. But that wasn't always the case. In the 80s, you know, they, they pretty much owned us. And uh, when Coach Furrier got to Florida in 1990, he said, look, if we're going to accomplish any of the goals that we want to accomplish – it starts by beating Georgia and really put an emphasis on that game. And uh, we were able to turn the tide and started owning them and, and have really narrowed the gap in terms of total wins in that series over, over, the, over the, the history of that, uh, that matchup. And so, you know, I, I think we're at a point again where everybody now, for a while, Florida fans kind of just forgot about Georgia. It became Florida State. It became Tennessee. Those were the games that, that Florida fans wanted to win the most. And I think everybody now, now again, points back to Georgia – for that exact same reason that Spurrier talk, Coach Spurrier talked about, was like, hey, if we're going to accomplish our goals, if we want to win an SEC championship, if we want to play in the college football playoff, we've got to find a way to beat Georgia. And so there's a lot of pressure that goes along with that. And sometimes when you put that much emphasis on a game, you can have a letdown. I thought last year Florida looked really unorganized in that game for about three quarters. They looked like a, a, a totally different team that we had seen in any of Coach Mullen's previous games as the head coach of Florida. Um, but I think you learn a lot. You know, the thing that I, I look at in Jim McElwain's last season, what was the score? 42-7 or 49? Yep, something 42 crazy. 42-7. Yeah, it wasn't even close. And it wasn't, it wasn't that close. Yeah, it wasn't even that close. But the, the thing is, the very next year, with pretty much the same players, Coach Mullen comes in and puts a great scheme together and, more importantly, has them believing that they're just as good as Georgia is. We've seen them go toe-to-toe the last two years. Now's the year you got to get over that hurdle if you're going to get to where you want to be. And I think that um, this is the year. Everybody, Florida fans, think if not now, win. And so uh, I, I look at there couldn't be a better set of circumstances heading into this year with no spring practice. The things that you look at without having the normal offseason, what do you need? You need continuity in the coaching staff. Florida has that. Georgia does not. They, lose, they got a new offensive coordinator. They lose Sam Pittman, who's one of the best offensive line coaches in the country. Uh, and then, you know, at, at, at the, uh, you have to have experience on the field. Florida has that everywhere, particularly at the quarterback spot, and everybody's talking about Georgia's quarterback situation. But I'm not buying Jamie Newman can come in 
and without ever having played a snap in this conference before and be this world beater like everybody's making him out to be. So I have a little bit of skepticism about him adapting to the SEC and maybe even more so adapting to an offensive scheme that he's never been a part of before. Don't they only have one returning receiver? George Pickens is the guy, you know, but behind him, who, who are the pass catchers? Dominic Blaylock hurt his knee last year. What, what's his status going to be? Uh, Demetrius Robertson's a, a really, I mean, he was a five-star receiver when he went to Cal, but has uh, underwhelmed a little bit since he's been in Athens. So there are some guys there, but usually you figure that stuff out in spring. Usually you figure that out in the summer when quarterbacks are working seven-on-seven and one-on-one stuff on their own, and they just haven't had the chance to do that this year. Now, speaking of Georgia, Chris, I was at the Florida-Georgia game last year. Tell me what your thoughts were on the Lawrence Cager catch. And I'm using catch in air quotes. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody, whether you're a Florida fan, a Georgia fan, or anybody else, you see the reviews, and it clearly wasn't a catch. I don't understand how that wasn't overturned when they went to the the replay. But, you know, you got to play through it. And Florida did. I mean, they they come down to the final – Final series of the uh, of, of final possession of the night. I mean, if they get a stop on third down, Florida had some momentum. They had a chance to to potentially you know pull that one out. But um, too many miscues, too many. I thought poor play calls. I thought execution in the first three quarters was like I said before, really not up to what we had expected from the Dan Mullen coach teams the last two years. So aside from Georgia, what game on the schedule do you think is the toughest for Florida? Oh, man, I, I think it's LSU. And I know LSU loses a lot, you know, particularly Joe Burrow. Uh, they a bunch of guys on defense. But Coach O has done a nice job with that program, and they've uh, recruited really, really well. Uh, that's a game that, unfortunately, is a home game here this year when we don't know if we'll even have any fans in the stadium. I hate wasting a home game against LSU with the idea of not the Swamp not really being the Swamp. So uh, I think that's going to be a, a really challenging game outside of the Georgia game for the Gators. I got to say, though, Mississippi on the road to open the season is a trap game, major trap game. I've been kind of eyeballing that game as trouble since it came out in the first version of our 2020 schedule, you know, before COVID when it was still a 12 game slate. And I was thinking, well, you know, Florida hasn't gone undefeated since 1911. So the odds are they're going to have a game where they just don't play well on the road against an unfamiliar opponent who really isn't as good as you. So maybe you get a bit complacent and haughty, Maybe you don't protect the football quite as tightly as usual. Maybe mechanics start to suffer a little bit because you think, well, we don't have to do everything 100% because they're not as good as us. So maybe you blow a coverage or something along those lines. And now my fear is heightened a little bit, both because of the lack of the offseason and since it's the opening game. Now I get it. I know it's a first-year head coach there. I know that that job came open for a reason because Mississippi was horrible last year, but both those things applied to Miami last year too. And we almost lost that one because we couldn't make a tackle. And now we haven't been doing tackling drills all year, like literally all year long. The last form of organized tackling we did was against Virginia in the orange bowl on December 30th, 2019. So literally all year. And even that didn't go superbly well. Now I get it. The Rebels haven't either. And I am well aware that Florida will likely be double digit favorites. It's a game Florida should win, but it scares me a little bit. Do you think that that's a logical fear or do you think I'm just being paranoid? Damn. I'd rather have them opening game than have them later in the year, for sure. Told you, told you Neil. <laughs> no, I, I, I get it. But the thing is, Florida has a history of not playing very well in opening games of the year. Like Miami last year, I think we can all agree, was not very good. They lost to FIU. And I'll, I pointed this out on the podcast multiple times before. They were the, the third best team in their own Metroplex because FIU got clocked by FAU. So they're the third best team in the Miami area. And we almost lost to them because we couldn't tackle. And now we don't even have spring ball to go through all the tackling drills. So we yeah, but the great part well, is everybody doesn't have spring ball. You know, I mean, it'd be one thing yeah. if it was just us. So I think I think you're going to see a lot of sloppiness. I mean, I think the offenses are going to struggle this year, particularly in the beginning of the season. Like, I look at that Georgia-Alabama game. I think that, um, you know, I, I think Georgia benefited from having that game move back to the fourth game of the season where maybe they – they have a little bit of a rhythm developed by then, but I think they're all offensively going to struggle in the early portions of this, uh, this schedule this season. The only part about that game that worries me is Florida doesn't do well against mobile quarterbacks. So John Rice Plumley 
his legs worry me. Yep. Um, especially in the first game. But I'd rather him, like you said, I'd rather have that first game of the year than four games later when, when he learns how to run. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and of all the new coaches, again, you know, there are four, four new coaches in the conference, four very difficult schedules as they get welcomed to the league, particularly in, in week one. But I think that, that Lane Kiffin has the chance to be the most successful. You inherit not only John Rice Plumley, Jerrion Ely, Snoop Connor. Those guys were all true freshmen last year that were big contributors on the offense. The defense got a lot better. It's going to be a challenge for Florida. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily put a lot of credence in the whole state of Mississippi thing because I don't know that it has a real bearing what we did in 92 when we went to Mississippi State or you know, what happened when Rex and them went to Oxford. Uh, what was that, 2000 or whatever it was? Like, I, I think yeah. that the, there – or no, it might have been 2002, whatever it was. I, I think the, the thing that uh, we got to remember is veteran teams with, with returning coordinators. And I, I think Todd Grantham is maybe one of the most underappreciated defensive coordinators in this conference, maybe the country as well. Um, but he, to me, he's the second or third, third best D.C. In, in this league, and I think he'll, he'll be ready. The thing you can't do against John Rice Plumley. You can't blitz as much because if you, you miss, this dude's off to the races. If you're playing man coverage in the secondary, back to the quarterback, those are big gains for him. you got to kind of build a fence around him. Well, for our listeners' reference, it was actually both 2000 and 2002 that we lost to inferior teams in the state of Mississippi. Uh, 2000, we lost at Mississippi State because we gave up 47 points, and we – launch rocket-propelled snaps past Rex Grossman on back-to-back plays and took a safety. And 2002, we lost at Ole Miss because we just couldn't score. But, yeah, anyway, Plumlee's legs do worry me, particularly if the aforementioned opening game tackling issues rear their ugly head again. And that goes especially on third and long when our D has done its job to bring itself within one play of getting off the field, and they just can't wrap them up. Third and Grantham with that. Yeah. Well, we saw against Georgia, 12 for 18 on third down, and, and it wasn't exactly third and one every time. That was execution, though. If you go back and watch the tape on that, they had good calls that just for whatever reason, one or two players chose not to execute their assignments. And football is the greatest team sport there is. I mean, if, if, if 10 guys are doing what they're supposed to do and one guy doesn't, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fail in a lot of cases. And so, um, you know, I don't put that on Grantham as much. I guess in a way you do if you have guys on your defense that aren't playing their assignments that's that's a coach's issue but in terms of play calls I don't necessarily know that I blame him much for that one yeah I don't I don't really blame him for that as much as I blame you know the whole team for the for the totality of it the pattern of it it's not like you know you know the, the touchdown the, the deep touchdown to Cager I think it was like that's a busted coverage you can't blame him for that it's when it, it happens 12 times on third and long that you look at the entire game and say well 12 different times maybe that's a problem yeah, I think the biggest thing in that entire game offensively and defensively would just panic, you know, disorganization and panic. And um, you guys know this. Like, I think that's one of the things that made us really good when I was at Florida. We didn't really panic, man. We, we went out there, played the same way. It was just uh, – it's a confidence that comes along with it. And I think Florida's going to have to figure out a way to beat Georgia and not go into that game tight with understanding what's, what's on the line. You can't let that – that get to you, you know, you, you, you funnel the excitement and the enthusiasm about playing one of the best teams in the country. Um, but when the game kicks off, man, it's about execution. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about the impact of having less fans in the stands a little bit later, but even just right now, uh, how much do you think the Florida Georgia game having much less fans in the stands will impact how the players come into that game? Do you think that because they're not seeing anyone in the stands, it'll, It'll help them to be more focused and less amped up, or will it be the opposite? What are your thoughts on that? I think in general, and I don't know how it's going to affect the Gators, but I think in general what you need is a veteran team that can get their juices going. Like, you're going to have to find a way to bring your own juice. Like, it, it, it's not going to be something where you can feed off the crowd. you you got to be a mature guy that shows up and, and, and has your team ready to play. So – it will be interesting watching a game at a neutral site that's truly neutral with no, no fans in the stands. Um, it seems a little goofy going to, uh, to Jacksonville. I, I understand why they did it. Uh, Greg McGarity didn't want Georgia having a home game and then Florida getting a home game when there actually are fans in the stadium next year, uh, presumably. But I do think that um, it will be weird because one of the great parts 
And you guys all know this, man. It, visually, it's one of the greatest scenes in college football. Half black and, and red, half orange and blue. You, you can't beat that, that visual over there. Oh, yeah. And it's even better when that visual shows uh, half the Georgia fans <laughs> out of the stadium. Was, yeah, beat me to it. I was going to say it's even better <laughs> when it's half orange and blue and half teal. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> yes. One, exactly. When I, when, I was, when I was playing or when I was growing up, I went over there, you know, in order, I never got, my parents would never, we had season tickets, but they would never buy Florida Georgia tickets because we always lost. So I had to, I had to sell programs just to get into the game over there as a kid. And I just remember back then it used to be quarters. They have orange and blue, red and black, orange and blue, red and black. Now they've made it half side, red and black, half side, orange and blue. To, Gator Bowl. The, the contact beach bowl. points, uh, yeah. Uh, the beach ball Gator effect, bowl. right? Gator bowl. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, you know, one of my favorite memories, we talk about that game in, in Athens. Like, you know, when we came out of halftime, we were up a ton. It was all orange and blue between the hedges, man. It was no – very little red and black left. We, we cleared that place out, man. And nothing better as a player than to look up in the stands and, and see what you've done to affect their, uh, their crowd support. Another underrated game was that 93 game against uh, Georgia, that, that slop fest in Jacksonville. It was – you know what? It made me mad because the, the focal point of that game plan was supposed to be me catching a lot of balls on corners and, and, and cover two posts. They played a lot of cover two, and so I was supposed to catch a lot of balls in that game, and then all of a sudden I'd never have been involved in a game where the rain was coming down. I mean, it was like – it looked like it was midnight when we came out to warm up. And I remember sitting in the hotel there out at uh, the TPC Sawgrass, seeing the, 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 the rain roll in and just coming out of the, the warm-ups, coming out of the locker room for warm-ups. I don't think I've ever seen rain as hard as that. I mean, waterfalls are flowing down the stairs of the Gator Bowl. Um, it was just a miserable day. But fortunately, Eric Rett was kind of a workhorse for us. And, and uh, Judd Davis, I think, kicked five field goals enough to uh, help us win that game. Anthony Lott with a, a, a crucial timeout right at the end to, to uh, negate a, a touchdown that Eric Zier threw to, would have taken a lead for him. Remember, my grandfather was like, he called a timeout. And I'm like, no, he didn't. And then they, they went back and called yeah. a timeout. And I was like, oh, yeah. my God. Worked out well for the Gators. <laughs> All's God's well well. on the Gators that day. That. <laughs> All's well that ends well, I guess. Uh, although it didn't – it almost didn't end well. But, yeah, so, so Georgia is big. There's, there's no debating that. Um, there are other games on the schedule, too, that have drawn a lot of eyeballs. And I think the, the main one that's not Georgia is the Arkansas game because that's where Felipe Franks makes his happy return to the swamp. Now, it is a great storyline. There's no debating that. But I wanted to go a little bit more into the X's and O's with you. Felipe's had a lot of reps against Todd Grantham and many of the same players on defense that he'll be facing that day in practice. But the converse of that's also true. Florida's defense and defensive coaches have gone up against him extensively in practice as well. So they're both very familiar with each other. Who do you think that that favors more? Well, I mean, I, I think it favors the team that has the better players. I mean, I, I think that Todd Grantham's able to do more uh, to negate what Felipe Franks does well because of the players he has on his side of the ball than what the offense is able to do surrounding Felipe Franks. And you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how Felipe's mindset is, you know, the emotions of coming back. He wasn't supposed to be playing Florida this year. So coming back, playing against your former teammates, guys that really respected him, um, it, it would have been a lot more interesting had we had fans in the stands. I would have loved to have seen it. I don't know what you guys thought, but, you know, they were booing him when he was wearing orange and blue. I don't know if he would have been welcomed back with cheers or welcomed back with boos, but it probably would have been a pretty good mix of both, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that that day was wild. Yeah. That South Carolina game where he got booed. Yeah, hushing your own fans is not game. something we see every day. So uh, yeah, he, he he was an interesting character. Um, hey, I do this, so stop playing with me. I do this. Um, so I've got a question. You know, we can talk about Arkansas and Missouri being you know the obvious losers of this of this schedule, but. Taking that away, how do you think Florida ended up um, with this? Do you think they ended up in a good position? Do you think they ended up in a murky position or a bad position? How talking you about Arkansas that lost to, at home last year to San Jose State and to Western Kentucky. Um, you know, they, they got some good young players on the team. I think Sam Pittman will get them going, but I don't think they'll get them going in year, year number one. 
Texas A&M, I'm not a, I'm not a huge believer in Texas A&M. I know a lot of people think this is the year that uh, Jimbo Fisher, you know, returns uh, on that investment that they've made in him. But, you know, this is a t- they, they added Florida. They added Tennessee to the schedule. Kellen Mond, you know, is inconsistent as hell, makes some great throws at times, and other times he goes completely cold. Um, so I, I think going to Kyle Field when there's potentially going to be nobody there or 25% capacity there, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy with the, the additional two teams that, that Florida drew. Now, are there, are there any other teams that stick out to you that, you know, maybe have a better route to Atlanta or maybe have well, issues? Let's go back and talk about what I mentioned earlier in the show with Georgia. I mean, that stretch, I honestly believe this year, guys, there's not going to be a team that goes undefeated in this 10-game SEC schedule. And I think that it very likely could be that the SEC champion ends up finishing the season 9-2, which um, in a normal season we'd have worries about the SEC getting somebody into the college football playoffs. But, um, you know, with this season, the way it's playing out, and Pac-12 and Big Ten not playing, I, I don't think that'll be an issue. To respond to some fans' concerns, do you think there'll be an asterisk listed by whomever wins the national title? doesn't matter to me. I mean, we're, you know, I'm just hoping we have football. Like, it's, I love the effort that's being made right now. You know, the, I, I thought the Big Ten was premature in their announcement. I thought they were premature in their announcement about a conference-only schedule. I thought they were premature about their announcement to scrap the season. Uh, there was no real sense of urgency. Why did you have to do it at that point in time? Now, conversely, I think that, that Greg Sankey has been tremendous in providing leadership, strength, patience, wisdom. Uh, I love – you know, what, what he's been able to do. And, and we don't know if we're going to have a season yet, but I think he's given us the best opportunity to have a season. And when it's all said and done, if we get through a 10 game season, plus an SEC championship and a, and a college football playoff, I think whoever wins this season, you know, rather than looking at it as a detractor, you've been battling through a lot of adversity to find your way atop the college football mountain. Yeah. That's um, true. No, absolutely. There's, you know, there's been there's been a lot of talk from you know the Big Ten fans. They like to do a lot of jabbering on social media, and they've been saying stuff like, "Well, there's not a real championship if you don't have to go through Ohio State and stuff like that." But I think it what you just said speaks volumes. Like there's adversity in front of every single team that is playing like never before, and for them to beat that adversity as well as a Clemson, an Alabama, maybe a Florida, maybe a Georgia beating great teams on top of this unforeseen adversity, I think should be something that you don't put an asterisk on, but you put, you know, maybe a trophy emoji beside to denote if the fact that, Hey, this was an unprecedented mountain that this team had to climb and they did it. So kudos to them for that. Yeah. I'll but, tell you this, man, eight game conference schedule. When we're playing, when I was at Florida, we played eight sec opponents. That's a challenge. Playing 10 is going to be a meat grinder. You find your way through this schedule, you're going to be mentally and physically fatigued by the end of the year. Uh, I just think it's going to be something that's going to be fun for for us to watch as fans. And I have a hard time believing we're going to be able to go back to eight conference games playing against FCS opponents, a group of five teams. Honestly, I'd I'd rather play that. Let's play that nine or 10 teams. That's what I was going to say. Let's bring Auburn back on the schedule. You can ask it, but I'm with you, man. I I think this is going to be fun. You know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And, and during the pandemic, we've seen, you know, the rise of Zoom. We're doing this on a Zoom. Like, I never even heard of Zoom before the <laughs> pandemic, right? Everybody's using Zoom now. And nobody's commuting the same way that they had to to work. People aren't flying across the country. Like, there are changes that are going to be made that are going to be beneficial for everybody. And I think the SEC having to play a 10-game conference-only schedule is something that's probably going to, to at least, you know, whether we play 10 – uh, or, or, or maybe make it even nine. Like, I think we're going to add SEC opponents because the thing we clamored about the last couple of years is like there are teams in the SEC that we, don't, we, we see once every, what, eight or nine years or whatever it is as they, they rotate on our schedules. Uh, Auburn was a great rival of ours. When I, when I was a kid, when I was playing at Florida, Auburn was one of my favorite games to be a part of, and we haven't seen those guys in, in forever. So they're the closest team in proximity to Gainesville. They should be on our schedule more often. And I, I think we're going to see an expansion of the SEC schedule as uh, seasons wear on after this. I mean, Casey. that Auburn game last year, I don't think I've ever seen the Swamp like yeah. that. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was tremendous. Yeah. And, and, and I just wish it, it was a rivalry we got to play every single year because uh, what you saw last year was 
the way it used to be, man. That that the real orange and blue against that uh, that other orange <laughs> and blue, and it's uh, it's a fun rivalry. Casey, tell tell Absolutely I want you right. to tell Chris what I think of Auburn because I don't want to do it. I want you to tell him what I keep telling you about the Florida Auburn rivalry. I mean, I'll tell you my thoughts. I, I mean, because I'm not sure where Neil's going with that, but I, I mean, you know, because I want to play them every year. If we go to nine games, we need to pick Auburn then. I mean, yes. that's because to me, like, look, LSU is a great rivalry, right? But it doesn't have the history that Auburn does. I mean, you look at what what we did to each other in the 90s. I mean, those games were often better than the Florida Florida State uh, games. I mean, that, that, that. I could tell you, man, some of my most disappointing memories from my time at Florida were, were those Auburn games in 93 and 94. I mean, we, we, we gave it away in 94, you know, at the end of the, end of the ball game. Uh, 93 was a, uh, just a tremendous back and forth. Um, 95, actually, shoot, we were down 10 nothing, and it looked like we were on the verge of, of losing another one to him. And Redell Anthony returned a touchdown, a kickoff for a touchdown, and kind of changed our fortunes that day. But it, that, that playing at Jordan Hare, I remember we were up 10 zip in 93. We're going into the end zone on the three yard line and coach Spurrier had uh, called a, a 97 or he called a slant to me on the backside. We were in a trip formation. Danny misread the symbol and thought it was something else we had worked on. He throws it to the right instead of over to the slant on me where I got one-on-one -on -one coverage and it ends up being instead of 17 zip, it's a pick six the other way. And I remember looking up in the stands and it just vibrating, man. It was just uh, the most surreal kind of feeling. And uh, that, that's what you play in the SEC for, man. Fan bases like that, going on the road in, in environments like that, just a lot of fun. Well, and, and that kind of leads into my next question. And let's shift a little bit to Florida itself. How would you grade the, the job uh, beyond Georgia? So, you know, we assume that if he beats Georgia, he's going to get over the hump. But – so far, um, how do you think he's done, and what do you think his goals need to be in this unprecedented Well, I, I think he's done a tremendous job. I mean, I don't think you can look at the job Dan Mullen's done as anything other than just fa fabulous. I mean, he, he inherited a team in Jim McElwain's final season that went four and seven. Uh, it seemed like the program was in disarray. Georgia was dominating on the recruiting trail. It, it looked like, you know, Florida was going to fall way behind them, and uh, he's found a way to make those guys believe. Back-to-back 10-win -back seasons. Um, you know, I think the thing that, that has been the difference maker are what he's, he does really well. That's to be successful. I mean, go back and look two years ago. Florida runs in, in two crucial situations against LSU. They line up, they run speed option. You know, nothing that, that, that LSU had ever seen from Florida. They were going to have a hard time offensively, the line blocking that, that defensive end from, from LSU. So they, what do they do? They don't block him and they option off of him. Think back to two years ago, they go to Starkville. That offensive line couldn't match up with, with Mississippi State's defensive line. Uh, but what did they do? They, they threw a lot of quick passes, a lot of screens, made that defensive line chase sideline. Some of the things in game planning and play calling that I think were able to overcome what really has not been a very good offensive line the, the last two years. The fact that Florida's won 10 games with those offensive lines and been able to be that successful on offense is pretty huge. When you look at like Kyle Trask last year when he got thrown in at Kentucky, first, you know, first game um, that he had played for Florida in meaningful game time and He's not an option quarterback, but making that option work with P. Ryan yeah. when he tossed it and P. Ryan ran, I mean, incredible. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a credit to Dan Mullen in terms of his, his play design and, and, and advanced scouting. It's also a credit to Kyle Trask. I mean, you saw him come in and just all of a sudden the offense started clicking. You know, I, I thought, and I don't want to speak disparagingly against Felipe, and Felipe had you know, some great games as a Florida quarterback and had some, some mind-numbing decisions at times. But I do think the one thing that, that you saw with Kyle is all of a sudden when he got in there, the offense had rhythm, right? Offense is about rhythm. It's about being able to, to stay on track, stay ahead of the chains, move the chains, convert third downs, and you saw that with, with Kyle. So to his credit, he was prepared, man. He came in and, 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 and looked like a guy that had been anticipating being a starter for a long time, and when he finally got his chance, he took advantage. It's going to be fun to see those two guys go head-to-head -head against each other. We're going to – I guess, find out for sure which one of them was better. It doesn't really work that way, but it's a fun thing for fans <laughs> to talk about. But, yeah, so we're talking about the SEC schedule being 10 this year, uh, 10 games, talking about it going to nine potentially five years or so from now when the current rotation runs out. One game we're not going to have this year, though, is FSU. I know that's a very special game to a lot of fans. I know it's a special game 
to you. And I know it was frustrating to a lot of people to lose it because it feels it feels like it didn't have to be that way because the optics of having planes flying halfway across the country going to or having Arkansas and Missouri flying to Gainesville and Florida flying to Texas for the Texas A&M game, but we can't drive 150 minutes up the interstate to play our biggest rival, the, the closest fellow Power 5 school to us. I was wondering about your thoughts on how that all went down and on top of that, how disappointing exactly it is to yeah. lose that game. I'm disappointed by not having Florida have a chance to play Florida State, especially in in year number one of a new coaching staff that that Florida probably would have won. You you think that Florida would have had the better team and be uh, of advantage in that game. But, you know, at the end of the day, I understand the decision that Greg Sankey made. Um, He wants to control what he can control. That's uniform testing and protocols within the SEC. That's minimizing risk as much as possible. And, um, you know, it, we're looking at it as a perspective of Florida fans, uh, the perspective of, of four SEC fan bases that have rivals that are in the ACC in the same state. The other 10 teams don't like – like we're talking about, hey, we're going to go ahead and add – we're going to play a 10-game conference, conference schedule plus one. Who are the other 10 teams going to schedule? Like – it, it, we have to look at again at the totality. It sucks for us. It sucks for Georgia. It sucks for uh, Kentucky. It sucks for uh, South Carolina. But for the other 10 teams, it really isn't a big deal and probably would have been harder for them to try to schedule somebody that would have made the same amount of sense as, as Florida playing Florida State, as you mentioned. Well, I would argue so, that, that South Carolina had a favor done because they would have gotten smacked yeah. by Clemson. Um, yeah. But, I mean, LSU lost Texas. Tennessee lost Oklahoma. That might have been another favor that, that was done. But then again, as you mentioned earlier, you know, let's go play Oklahoma. Like what you said about Kentucky going to Tuscaloosa. Like the fans might want to cry about it, but the players see that as an opportunity to go play a big-time program, and they all lose it because, you know, you couldn't agree on a standard COVID testing protocol. I mean, how – and I talked to a couple players right after the decision was made to only go to, or to go to conference only schedules. And they said the same thing in that how different could different conferences, COVID protocols be? And we've seen that they are different, but how, and then the follow-up to that is how difficult could it be to just agree to a uniform protocol for both teams for that one game, just to preserve the rivalry. Like that has to be frustrating. Uh, I forget about all that. The thing that frustrates me is the lack of communication and coordination amongst the Power Five conferences as a whole. Like, how hard is it for everybody to get on the same page? I mean, there was talk heading into the the NCAA's vote about whether or not they were going to have fall championships. The Power Five may break off. I mean, the usefulness of the NCAA is about run its course. I mean, I saw something the other day that was funny. It said they're the greatest party planners ever because all they do is the uh, NCAA basketball tournament, right? What else do they do? And I thought that the Power Five was probably going to to find a way to work together and be on the same page to make a season happen. And the Big Ten, with their moral superiority, decided they were going to try to be like the uh, the Ivy League and do their own thing. I, I just, you know, I, I think – Mark Emmert the other day was made a light of the idea that we, we people are talking about wanting to have a, a college football czar and, and literally talking about what a czar is. Hmm. But I, I would argue this, and I hate to see it because I love Greg Sankey as our commissioner, but he would be a tremendous guy to oversee all of the Power Five conferences to help everybody get on the same page because we're stronger together. When B- the Big 12 made their decision to play, um, that made us stronger as a group with the ACC. I bang on the ACC all the time. But I'm proud of them for making the decision they did. And we wouldn't, I don't, th- you know, even though we could have a season on our own as an SEC, uh, Southeastern Conference, I, I don't think we would have been able to be at this place had the Big 12 not decided to, to kind of partner with us and, and move forward. So I hope there's some coordination and uniformity amongst the three remaining Power Five conferences. Well, how about, I mean, you said a commissioner. How about a board? Like we have the CFP committee meeting in a room to decide the college football playoff rankings several different times. How difficult could it be to have, maybe a group of people just deciding these things uniformly or yeah. Yeah. That that's, that is right. English. Yeah. Uniformly across all five power conferences. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there, there could, there, there needs to be something better than what we're doing right now. And um, you know, whether it's a board, whether it's one person that there needs to be more collaboration between the power five conferences, uh, particularly in football. Hey, maybe uh, if, if Sankey moves up to that czar role, we can get uh 
the old ball coach as a SEC commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> I could promise you Tennessee probably wouldn't like that. Georgia wouldn't like that very much. <laughs> Well, oh, man. if Spurrier was the SEC commissioner, you better believe Georgia would be playing somehow. They'd be going to Alabama twice every three years or something. You know, <laughs> you know hey, funny. Hey. Everybody hated hated Coach Spurrier at other places that uh, had to play against us in the '90s. But everybody's developed this fondness for him now that he's not not the coach anymore. You know, I think that that everybody looks at him as a guy that that obviously is on the Mount Rushmore of of coaches, and I think that they. I guess they're not getting needled by him quite as much in the offseason, being beaten like a drum the way that he used to. But uh, I do think it's funny how their perspective towards him has changed a little bit. Hey, I mean, he's the quintessential Florida man. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, down in Crescent Beach. Well, Chris, speaking of favors in, 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 in the NCAA, it's a perfect segue. Um, I know a lot of fans, myself included, have had, we'll, we'll just keep it delicate, questions about the waiver process with the NCAA and the lack of uniformity, the lack of cohesion, the lack of transparency, fill in the blank. Um, and, you know, Florida has been certainly helped by it with Lorenzo Lingard this year, but, you know, we're still waiting on Justin Shorter and Jordan Pouncey while guys like JT Daniels and other players get immediate eligibility where they go. And, you know, we look at outside the SEC. Uh, why couldn't Luke Ford, uh, who transferred home to be near his grandfather so they could see him play or Brock Hoffman and they get waivers denied. I, I just would love to see, and, and we look at Justin Fields going to Ohio State or Tate Martell down in Miami. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this process and just get your insight um, because it just seems really flawed. And it seems like there are a lot of issues and a lot of frustrations and a lot of just lack that, of that, transparency. That's the so biggest, your, the biggest your phrase thought. right there, lack of transparency. How, how do we, how are we to understand uh, you named a bunch of different situations like Tate Martell. How does Tate Martell get a waiver because he was beaten out at Ohio State and all of a sudden he's allowed to, to play immediately at Miami. Like, I don't understand the rhyme or reason that, that the NCAA is utilizing, but I think it's created a lot of, of, of mistrust. I think it's uh, shown a lot of hypocrisy. And, um, you know, I, I do think that there should be a one-time waiver rule. I mean, uh, everybody should have an opportunity to transfer and not have to sit out one time. The other thing that we're dealing with right now, name, image, and likeness, like, I, I, what we, we talk about all the time is that other general student population people are allowed to, to make money off of their YouTube channel or, or are allowed to, to, to come up with some other thing that can make them money, but, but football players can't have their jerseys sold or can't have autograph signings. Like, it doesn't make sense. I'm not for pay for play at all, but the name, image, and likeness thing makes sense because the general population can do that, and the general population can transfer if they decide they want to go to another school as well. I know you want to create some sort of competitive balance, but at the same time, are you going to tell a kid that he can't go play somewhere else if he's unhappy in the current situation he's in? No, no. I mean, as an academic advisor that's worked with student athletes, I work at Georgia Tech. And, you know, these, what people don't realize is, you know, they've got practice, they've got weight room, they've got study hall, they've have afternoon practice, they've got classes. Yeah. And yeah, you, certainly you're getting your room, your board, your tuition, but what about if you want to go out and have a pizza? What if you just want to have a night out or bar with your friends? They can't get money from a yeah. job because they don't have time and there's so much of a restriction there. So why can't they make money off of, you know, their name, image, and likeness? Yeah, just I, I will about, say but. it's such a fine line. And, and, and going back to what I said about the, the pay for play, I am not by any means uh, an advocate for pay for play. My individual situation, we talked about it from the beginning, man. I walked on, I got a scholarship before my sophomore year, got a chance to have my, my, my schooling paid for. I have a degree from the University of Florida in the College of of journalism, which I use every single day now. The name that I made for myself playing football in Florida gave me an opportunity to play in the NFL, but also allowed me to open the mortgage company that I have now. Like those things gave me an opportunity. So I do think there is a value to a scholarship. I, I do think that, that, that players should be grateful and show some appreciation for what uh, having an education can do for you for the rest of your life. But I'm with you in the interim. You know, they should be able to, to make a little bit of money off of who they are. The, the autograph thing and the, the jersey thing to me, um, it was very hypocritical when we were in school to see number seven jerseys being sold and knowing everybody was wearing those for Danny Warfel and yet he wasn't seeing, you know, a single cent from that. And like I said, I just wanted to add in as the student advisor, um, you know, that works with student athletes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a high crime. I mean, that these students can't, you know, I'm not for pay for play either, but they can't make any money off of the, their, their image or their likeness or anything yeah. like that. 
so Dustin had a question about uh, Steve Spurrier he wanted to ask you that I uh, I hopped in there early and asked. So Dustin, <laughs> so obviously playing for Spurrier, you got to have some stories. I know you probably told a few, but is there a Steve Spurrier story that might be something new that we can give to the audience? Oh man, it's it's funny. I think that the I heard one of you guys do it early. Like we all have a Coach Spurrier imitation, right? I mean that was one of the things that we always had a fun time talking to each other in that Coach Spurrier voice. But I think the favorite thing, like before every every game, he'd come around the locker room, and, and it used to be when I was there, he'd shake everybody's hand, but then it became he was dapping everybody up with a little fist. And uh, he'd come by and say, all right, Danny, have, have a good game today. All right, Chris. All right, my man. And if he my man, that means he forgot your name. It, like so that was like the so we uh we would always get a good laugh out of that man so did he ever my man you he he didn't my man me like he didn't forget my name and you could see right i got i got that uh, coach spurrier signed jersey behind behind me and uh one of the my favorite things ever was that he signed that he said to chris one of my all-time favorite players and uh really means a lot to me i mean outside of my parents there's not another guy that's had a bigger influence on the trajectory of my life not only you know, what I was able to do at Florida, giving a walk-on an opportunity, which is basically unheard of in college football, um, giving me a chance to revitalize my career in the NFL after I tore my Achilles tendon when he went to Washington. The lessons that I've learned that have helped me in the business world, in the broadcasting world, I just am so thankful for having a chance to, to play with him at a very special time in our program's history. Uh, you guys are younger than me, but when I was growing up, you know, the, the, the mantra was wait till next year. You know, Florida could never find a way to win that important, crucial game and always uh, found a, a way to choke out any opportunity that they had. And Coach Spurrier changed that, uh, that storyline, that narrative, and uh, very proud to have been a part of that change. Now we're all spoiled. <laughs> that, that's the thing. I'll tell you this. It, it, it drives me crazy. Uh, newer, younger Gator fans don't understand the history and they don't understand the struggle that it took to get to where we are right now. I mean – it, it, we we took for granted getting to Atlanta. You know, Atlanta, there's not a better game than the SEC championship game. And being a part of that uh, for, for the four years that I was uh, at Florida, just such a cool thing. And I think players took it for granted. Players ran Coach Spurrier off because of the expectation level. The wins were no longer as gratifying as the losses were painful. And uh, I think there still is a level of, of uh, entitlement that our fan base has that they need to understand. Man, it's tough playing college football in the SEC. And when we do get a chance to get to the SEC championship game, we need to appreciate that. You know, it was funny, you know, even in 2015-16 when I, you know, I live in Atlanta and, you know, just the mindset of, oh, yeah, it's the SEC championship. And, you know, looking at somebody, it's like, no, this, this is a big deal. Like, yeah. you know, we've been through Muschamp. We've been through, you know, all of this, you know, trial and tribulation. And it was just like they just didn't understand the, the impact and the gravity I think of that. The, the weird thing about those two years, it was almost like we backed into getting to Atlanta. It didn't really feel like we actually earned it. It was like a, a, a battle of ineptitude. And uh, we prized for doing that was your chance to get your brains beat in by Bama in the SEC championship game. But, you know, it is. It is special to get there again. And when Florida gets back, um, it's going to be something I think that we all celebrate and appreciate a little bit more because of the drought. So, Chris – I know at this point, I'm sure everybody listening to this right now is dying to hear what your thoughts are as far as how you think the Gators are going to do this season. It's obviously super difficult to pin down a record prediction at this point. But if you had to, if you're tied to a chair and somebody said, hey, Chris, I need to know what, how the Gators are going to do this season, what record would you think the Gators are going to come out with? I don't know what the record is going to end up being, but I I really believe that Florida gets that chance to get back to the SEC championship. I I think Florida wins the East this year, which is, um, you know, something that I think all Gator fans would celebrate just as we just talked about, but uh, getting over that Georgia hump uh, would be huge. I I hope Florida is able to get to Atlanta by beating Georgia. I'd hate to see Florida win the East and and still lose to Georgia. I mean, I guess I, I, I would take it as a Florida guy, but uh, I do think this is the year that Florida gets back to the SEC championship game. And do they win? Absolutely. Do they win it? I'm going to have to hold yeah. on that one. I, I, hey, that's uh, fair. I think, I think Florida uh, – my call would be Florida and Alabama in the SEC championship yeah, game I this love, year. I like that. I like that a lot. So, you know, we know about some of the, the, 
the highlight players. We know about Kyle Pitts and Kyle Trask, and and we also know about the uh, the the cornerbacks on defense, Tyre Elam. There's a lot of names being thrown out there for um, potential All SEC selections and so on and so forth. But what I want to know from you, Chris, considering that you were an X factor uh, for the '93 season and onward in your in your career at the University of Florida, who do you see? as the Gators X factor this season? Man, I think, you know, if you look at uh, on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, the, the greatest X factor of all, the, the best X factor in the entire conference this year will be Kyle Pitts. I mean, he's a matchup issue. Um, you know, we saw the way Dan Mullen utilized him last year. It reminded me a lot of the way he used Cornelius Ingram back in the, the Tebow years. So I think he's an X factor. But if I had to talk about a breakout player for Florida, uh, I'm excited to see what my, my hometown Gainesville guy, Trent Whittemore, does. You know, he's wow. incredibly athletic. Uh, a guy that, um, you know, his father and I grew up here in Gainesville together. Mark Whittemore played at UCF. Um, his mom, tremendous volleyball player at Florida when I was there too. Uh, so it, I'm, I'm a little biased towards him, but I'm excited about what he could do. And let's not forget, I mean, they may need him to play a lot, given the fact that we've had a couple receivers that missed the opening day of camp and, and some uncertainty there. Uh, and then defensively, I look at uh, Diabate, Mahmoud uh, Diabate, um, I, I think he's going to be a tremendous player on that defensive line in that, that buck position that has made uh, superstars out of uh, defensive linemen, outside linebacker types in this uh, Todd Grantham defense. And so I, I think uh, Diabate is the guy that is the, uh, is the X factor kind of breakout guy this year. Shout out David All right, Turner. And our last, uh, who are your final four playoff teams? Who knows? I mean, this is the year that I think you know, if there was ever a year for a group of five team to make it to the to the final four, it's an opportunity, man. I, I, I'm interested to see how the committee would look at the three power five conferences versus uh, a conference like the uh, AAC. You know, I, I'd almost half love to see UCF get there just to see him get beat down by, uh, by, by one of the SEC teams. Could you imagine? I'd love to see him just lose in the regular season and not even get there. And then you say, hey, you guys had your chance in a watered down year and you couldn't even do it. It is funny, though, how much uh, disdain we've developed for UCF. I mean, it, it, you know, I was embarrassed a couple years ago when they kept trying to claim that national championship thing. But I guess, you know, I guess it, it brought them notoriety. I guess uh, all press is good press, they say. But uh, I think it's created a lot of, uh, of, of, of hate towards them. And I'm, when, when do they, they rotate on our schedule here? No, no, they don't, do they? they don't. We've been still battling over that. We got U, USF. USF, the, the yes. Two for one coming up soon. Yeah, USF. They won't. They're too good to play a two for one against. Oh, and you, hey, when you put up, uh, you're a national champion on the side of your stadium. Yeah, that, that's uh, <laughs> awfully, awfully presumptuous of you there, man. And yet they were willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars. That I'm willing to bet is actually a lot more for them, a lot more damaging to their checkbook than it would be to UF's checkbook to not take a second beating after we clocked them 42 nothing in 2006. So, <laughs> I don't know. That, that kind of that beats a lot of arguments that they try oh, to make. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I don't know why, again, you know, we probably should, should uh, celebrate the fact that, that the state of Florida football is having success. You know, I, I love my, my days in the early 90s. Like, Florida was the, 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 the center of the college football world with Florida, Florida State, and Miami all in the top five. Like, that was, that was the way it was supposed to be. And, um, you know, as much as I hate those two other schools, it's a lot more fun when everybody's looking here at the state of Florida as, as really the home for college football. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on with us. What a, what a great conversation we've had today all around. We absolutely enjoyed having you on our show and we'd love to have you back at some point in the future. Again, that's all we have for y'all today in this episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and we hope you and your loved ones stay safe and healthy as we continue to push through a challenging 2020. And go Gators. go Gators. Go Gators. Go Gators. Hi, man. Thanks for having me.